Ahoy there, good morning, Panounda. Thank you for tuning in to this grotty little podcast in a derelict area of the internet. Still running on an old generator and broadcasting the weakest of radio signals out into the ether for unsuspecting listeners to happen upon. I'm your introduction in the flesh, Mr. Andrew John Roberts, Esquire, a 28-year-old with a passion for the seedy underbelly of horror movies and anything that even approaches controversial cinema. I was just a wee young lad when I was given access to the video recorder, and my diet growing up was 16-bit video games, a whole library of books, and of course trashy, gory horror flicks. I felt slightly betrayed though when I reached the age of 16 and I was bought a DVD copy of Lucio Fulci's House by the Cemetery, which I found to be one of the strangest films I'd ever seen at that point. The tone of it was just completely different to what I was used to, and shortly afterwards I gained access to a laptop and internet for college. I naively thought even Google hasn't heard of this film. Boy was I wrong, I uncovered a whole treasure trove of material and news stories telling a tale of a bunch of movies which the UK government tried to ban in what could only be described as a countrywide witch hunt and scaremongering. Hardly believing what I was reading, I then suddenly found that a lot of the films I'd grown up with were aftermath victims of this puritanical fight between good and evil, with violence, bad language and sexy scenes trimmed from a whole host of films. Learning of the BBFC and trawling their website, I found that the VHS versions that I owned of The Evil Dead, Commando, Predator, Robocop and even The Goonies were all censored. I'd been brought up on truncated movies, so I was not happy at all. Apart from going immediately and buying verified uncut versions of the films that I'd been scammed with online, I then took it upon myself to learn as much as I could about the furore, to see exactly why it occurred the way it did, which has eventually resulted in this podcast. Instead of covering the so-called Video Nasties films, which were pursued by the authorities back in the day, I've instead chosen to focus on the same era, and just to pick out examples which are just as nasty as the Forbidden Fruits themselves – but they clearly weren't controversial enough to get picked up by the police. Which in some cases highlights just how stupid the whole debacle was. If you're just catching this podcast for the first time, or even if you're a long-time listener, we're now actually in the final stages of becoming a full-on supernova. Yes, Nasty Pasty is due to end very shortly, with only a few episodes left to do. So this and the next two episodes are in our final four extreme episodes, covering way more controversial subjects and film styles to end on a really catastrophic note. After last week's necrophilia scene, we're retaining the sex, but we're dumping all the corpses. Well, at least some of them anyway. This episode featured today will be familiar to a lot of people, even those outside of its intended market. Emmanuel films. Now we've already covered an Emmanuel film before, 1977's Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, but that one was much more cannibal movie-esque as the subtitle sort of suggests, so the two we're covering today are more bona fide Emmanuel films, shall we say. Well, at least one of them is. Before we begin on these two sizzling hot sexploitation films, let's briefly sojourn into what an Emmanuel film actually is. Merely the name Emmanuel conjures up something rather seedy and sensuous. Frequently as a child or a teenager, you'd often see a film entitled Emmanuel taking pride of place on the adult-oriented channels or the foreign stations. Back in the 70s, where these films were born from, these sorts of movies were considered the de facto pornography of the era, as they were extremely liberal for their time, quite explicit in their depiction of sexual activity, and had some rather glossy production qualities, far from some amateur backyard action. 
This is more true, of course, in the United Kingdom, where hardcore pornography was outlawed under the Obscene Publications Act until 1999, when it was surprisingly and suddenly partially legalised. More on that particular tale on our next episode, really, but for now, let's talk about the actual Emmanuel brand. The character of Emmanuel first appeared in literature in the mid-50s, in the pages of a book by French Thai actress Mariette Rollet-Andran, written under the pseudonym Emmanuel Arson. The controversial book in question was 1957's The Joys of a Woman, which detailed illicit sexual trysts and affairs of a bored housewife of a French politician. While the books caused a stir in their native France, in 1974, director Just Yakin brought the Emmanuel character to life in a movie of the same name, starring Dutch actress Sylvia Christel in the main role. It was quite a hot potato at the time, receiving a usually damaging X rating in France. But rather than deter the audiences, it became an unlikely hit with a viewing audience of over 300 million. It was released all over Europe to rave success, with the exception of the United Kingdom, who were outraged at the explicit sex scenes, sexual violence and general perversity, cutting all of it out before they'd even consider a release. The film spawned six direct sequels in France, a carry-on spoof, which was 1978's Carry-On Emmanuel, and even bizarrely, a 1989 graphical adventure video game on the Amiga and the Atari. The Italians, of course, though, spotted potential, and by omitting one of the letter M's from the title, they started their own version of the Emmanuel character, beginning with 1975's Black Emmanuel, starring Laura Gemser as a reimagined character called Mae Jordan, a pleasure-seeking, polyamorous journalist with a nose for controversial news and an eye on the various specimens of men and women that she sees around her. Using the Emmanuel moniker as a pseudonym for her news articles, the character found herself travelling the world to various exotic locales and cities, snapping pictures of culture, wildlife and spectacles, all the while engaging frequently in sexual interactions with any willing or unwilling participant she can find. From the context of the time and the depiction of sexual politics in the 70s, most of these films were not what you'd call politically correct in any way but the character was portrayed in a mesmerising position of power, sexual dominance and confidence that's rather at odds with the usual portrayal of women during this era of filmmaking. The first film was directed by Beto Albertini, but his own sequel to the film, 1976's Black Emmanuel II, omitted Laura Gemps' character entirely and went with a different continuity, whilst 1976's Emmanuel in Bangkok was directed by Joe D'Amato and is considered the true sequel, as it retains the character, Laura Gemser, and the style. Now firmly in D'Amato's hands, a further four films were made in the same continuity, 1977's Emmanuel in America, Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, and finally Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade. While the title also doesn't indicate as such, Laura Gemser's Emmanuel character is also the main protagonist of two women in prison flicks from Bruno Mattai, Violence in a Women's Prison and Women's Prison Massacre. In fact, Gemser's portrayal was so popular that several films in which she starred in were altered in their marketing and post-production to be unofficial Emmanuel entries, such as Emmanuel Goes Japanese, Black Emmanuel, White Emmanuel and Sister Emmanuel. Where the Italian series differs, though, from the original French series is primarily its exploitation roots. The very existence of the Black Emmanuel series is, by proxy, exploitative, 
by cashing in on the success of the larger property, avoiding any major copyright issues by spelling the name differently. While the first film is technically a rehash of the sexploitation narrative established by the original Emmanuel, Joe D'Amato's films tend to introduce a new element in each instalment, sourced primarily from other areas of Italian exploitation. Emmanuel in Bangkok, for example, introduces elements from Mondo films, while Emmanuel in America integrates stronger elements of violence, snuff films and hardcore pornography throughout. Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals brings inspiration from the popular Italian cannibal film cycle, whilst Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade introduces crime film and poliziotesky elements into the mix of sex. Now that we know quite a big chunk of what we're getting into this week, the two films this time are Emmanuel in America and Emmanuel in Bangkok. Let's head to the States first and foremost and see exactly what Emmanuel gets up to when she takes a bite of the Big Apple. Journalist Emmanuel finishes an erotic photo session in New York with some nude female models before taking her leave and heading back home. On the car journey back, she's held at gunpoint by a hoodlum called Tony, who seemingly doesn't want money or to jack the car. Instead, he makes a philosophical analogy about morality to justify harming Emmanuel, citing one of the models, Janet, from the photo shoot as proof that Emmanuel is corrupting moral behaviour. 
Instead of panicking, she sweet-talks her way into his pants and changes his mind by performing oral sex on him, at which point he shamefully runs from the vehicle. Returning to her boyfriend Bill, she's thankful that the encounter didn't end in harm and has a quick drink before he convinces her to cancel her next appointment so that they can have sex. After the lovemaking, Emmanuel goes to her appointment with an old friend called Joe, who's got a story about a corrupt rich tycoon called Van Darren, who's looking for her harem. With the aid of Joe editing her passport to fit in with Van Darren's requirements, Emmanuel infiltrates the European mansion as one of the harem women, where she meets Charlie, one of Van Darren's employees, whom she makes love with. She fits a concealed camera in her bracelet and snoops around the grounds, finding a storage box in the barn containing guns. Charlie quickly redirects her to the swimming pool, where she meets the other girls, all representing a sign of the Zodiac, with Emmanuel herself representing Virgo. Later that night, Emmanuel and the rest of the women attend a party thrown by Van Darren, in which one of the women undresses for a horse named Pedro and begins to masturbate it. A short time afterwards, Gemini joins Emmanuel in the sauna, distraught that Van Darren has shown little interest in her for several weeks, leading Emmanuel to comfort her sexually. Emmanuel, however, is chosen and tries a different tactic by calling out his perceived weaknesses, taking snapshots while she does so. He's intrigued by her behaviour, even later when she brazenly wins a dice game that he's playing with his friend, the Duke of Montalba. The next day, Emmanuel buys her freedom from the harem with the dice winnings, and she then hitches a ride with the Duke, who's actually nobility from Venice. Deciding to follow him for a new story, Emmanuel meets the Duke and his wife Laura, and they discuss their relationship arrangements. Later that night, Emmanuel overhears a liaison between Laura and another man, revealing that the couple engage in swinging, which ultimately ends in Laura, Emmanuel and the Duke engaging in a threesome. The next day, boyfriend Bill arrives in Venice to meet Emmanuel because he misses her, though he's only available for a few hours, so they hastily go into a church for coitus. After he departs, Emmanuel returns to the Duke's home, where a large party of aristocrats has gathered. After a competition involving cake is concluded with a naked girl covered in whipped cream, the whole party descends into a full-blown orgy. The next day, Emmanuel travels back home to America after tiring of Venice, and has another photo session with Janet, who explains that the thug Tony has now married her, and is very voracious in his sexual appetite. With Bill in London, Emmanuel has a brief moment of phone sex with him, and the next day travels to a holiday resort in the country to investigate an organised group of male studs for female clientele. Finding it to be as saucy as it appears, Emmanuel takes some pictures and spies on a couple screwing inside a tent before snapping a cheeky photo of a man having daisies put in his pubic hair. She then wanders inside and takes photos of a threesome in progress, as well as a man and woman role-playing on the stairs. In one room, however, Emmanuel comes across a couple who are making love whilst a snuff movie plays in the background, featuring several women who are being violently sexually assaulted and murdered. Suspicious of her wandering around, two of the hotel staff deduce that she's a reporter and bust down her door, taking her hostage until she relinquishes the role of film. When she's held prisoner by the receptionist, Emmanuel tries to charm her way out by seducing the woman, but as she's met with resistance and eventually convinces her by making her eat an aphrodisiac and drink some alcohol. While she's writhing in pleasure on the floor, Emmanuel ditches the receptionist and runs away and manages to hitch a ride out of the resort. 
She convinces her driver to buy her a plane ticket and clothes by having sex with him, and upon her return to New York, she convinces her editor to take the case of the snuff movie, which she feels has merit. Speaking to an ex-police officer called Ron, she learns that the producers of the film are in Washington and meets with a senator who's into the stuff. Seducing him, she convinces him to put on some video material while they make love, and after he puts on some normal pornography, Emmanuel subtly hints that she wants something stronger. He eventually puts a snuff film on, which he perceives turns her on, and as a result, he drugs a drink and gives it to her, causing her to vividly imagine a sequence where she accompanies the senator to a remote location in the jungle and witnesses more brutalities happening in front of her eyes while the senator gropes her. Suddenly awakening, the senator informs her that he gave her LSD, explaining the sequence of images that she saw, and feigning pleasure at the encounter, she escapes and returns to her editor. He reveals that the dream was in fact real, and she managed to take pictures in her drugged-up state, showing her a set of revolting images that tell the tale. Just as Emmanuel gets excited about the story, the editor reveals that he won't publish it. Frustrated with their reluctance to respect the dangerous situation she was put in, Emmanuel storms out and takes a vacation with Bill in a foreign tropical country. As the pair are enjoying themselves, Emmanuel is suddenly snagged by a native trap, and the pair are taken by some local tribesmen. While Bill is given some village luxuries, Emmanuel is dolled up by the tribeswomen of the group, as their leader wishes to marry Emmanuel. As the pair discover that the tribe mean no real harm, they sit back and enjoy the dancing and the music that the tribe puts on for them. Staying the night, the pair awaken to a film crew arriving at the village and paying the natives to dance for their movie. Wishing to avoid the drama of being in the film, Bill and Emmanuel run away as the film ends.
Well, here you have it, folks. I'm technically reviewing pornography now on the Nasty Pasty podcast. 1977's Emmanuel in America was Joe D'Amato's second directed entry in the Black Emmanuel series, after the previous year's Emmanuel in Bangkok. And like that movie, it blends the very enticing and lucrative softcore exploitation model with another less sexy theme, in this case, snuff films. It's a rather bizarre combination, but considering D'Amato released full hardcore pornography and shocking gore sequences much later in his career, this is rather tame by comparison. As Emmanuel movies go, Emmanuel in America is no different when it comes to the plot. It's rather flimsy and it merely serves to get from one stripping scene to another of heavy petting, and so on and so forth. Slasher films, in essence, do the same thing, essentially stringing together some sequences of bloody murder with a wraparound narrative. Sexploitation films such as these have sex as the money shot, and to that end, Emmanuel in America certainly won't disappoint. It does have some unpleasantness thrown in, especially towards the film's climax, -er, but overall it's quite a sultry affair for the most part. Due to the film's structure as mainly a supply of constant TNA, the story's quite sequential and linear in terms of its progression. The individual sections of the film tend to finish when a sex scene of some sort ensues and Emmanuel just moves on to the next situation. Our first tableau is of Emmanuel doing a photo shoot with a naked model called Janet, which concludes when Janet's holier-than-thou boyfriend threatens her for her depravity, only to run away when he gets a tingle in his dingle from Emmanuel's impromptu but defensive act of seduction. Our next moment has Emmanuel dispatched to a villa in Spain on some tangential conversation with an old friend to join a harem for a depraved rich idiot. All of the girls represent the Zodiac, all of them have particularly bizarre tastes and roles in the arrangement, and all of this section is pretty much over when Emmanuel meets the Duke. There's some minor setup of the next situation, and Emmanuel then travels to Venice, indulging in an orgy held at the Duke's opulent residence. During this shenanigan in Italy, Emmanuel learns from a mature woman that there's an island in the Caribbean where women can buy toy boys to enjoy for the weekend. Guess where she goes next? We get another sequence of sexy exploits at this particular accommodation, which is rudely interrupted when Emmanuel spies a less than savoury video of snuff footage. This footage is then the impetus for the next situation, which takes our intrepid reporter back to the States in Washington, D.C. to discover where the footage has come from and who's responsible for its creation. While this feels like it's the last proper situation in terms of the plot, the story does take us somewhere new again for the film's brief epilogue, where Emmanuel goes on vacation with her boyfriend Bill to a tropical island somewhere. As you can see, the film's narrative doesn't exactly go anywhere major, other than someone's private parts or nubile body, and the situations are contrived in such a way that it's fairly obvious, even to a casual viewer, that the writing is designed only to get clothes off and passions flared. The only real spanner in the works is the introduction of the snuff footage, which is a major turn-off and a huge antithesis to the film's theme so far. This latter subject is the closest the film actually gets to a plot point, so it's rather good in essence that you're lulled into such a sense of security with all of the amorous goings-on that you're then grounded by some rather nasty sexual violence and some mutilations. The first section of the film, which deals very briefly with Emmanuel's photo shoot, is rather funny and light-hearted considering what's actually happening. Essentially being held at gunpoint and threatened with death would be enough to at least unnerve the average person, but Emmanuel takes it in her stride, not even panicking a little, and calmly employing her most powerful and trusted weapon, 
as seduction. The nervous guy, Tony, rather humorously spouts some quasi-religious and conservative garbage about Emmanuel degrading women into disreputable behaviour with her camera lens. Even from sheltered and prudish figures, this reasoning is intensely ridiculous as Janet is in control of her own body and her actions. But Tony also looks like the least conservative man that you'd ever see in these sorts of films. He looks way more appropriate as a street thug or a lazy bum that smokes marijuana all day. The situation is resolved, however, when Emmanuel gets into his underwear using her honeyed words, and he runs away in fright at actually being aroused. She then laughs the whole situation off, as though it were no more serious than a man asking her for directions. The actual first bit of story then occurs at this stage, with Emmanuel travelling to Spain to go undercover in a harem. She assumes the identity of Virgo, rather ironic considering her polyamorous approach to adult interactions, and with the help of a concealed camera and a piece of jewellery, she documents the depraved fashion in which Van Daren treats his collection of women. The expected casual sex scenes occur, with Emmanuel having it off with one of Van Daren's men, despite it being forbidden, and a sapphic encounter with the lonely Gemini. In another context, Gemini's sadness at not getting enough attention from the vile Van Daren would be an interesting aspect and a case study in Stockholm Syndrome. But in this example, it's merely an excuse to prelude a girl-on-girl scene of kissing and caressing. One of the more shocking and bizarre sequences, however, is when one of the girls goes into an intense lust for a horse called Pedro and ends up masturbating the horse in front of the camera. Zoophilia isn't really my sort of thing, but... Geez, you don't realise just how huge the penis of a horse actually is. You still hear occasionally of fatalities and injuries when humans have engaged horses in sexual activities. And after seeing one on screen, I'm really not surprised that randy cowboys have had their colons perforated by a rambunctious horse. Thankfully, the action does not get that graphic, but it's still a little odd to see a woman rub her hands over a giant leathery animal dick. Things get a bit more trash-talky as well in Van Daren's bedroom, where Emmanuel tries a more aggressive approach to lovemaking, insulting the guy and seeing if that'll turn him on. I mean, it sort of does, and it doesn't. Van Daren is not really the type to tape crap from a woman, but he's somewhat enthused by this different approach to sex anyway. The action, for lack of a better word, continues in Venice, with Emmanuel tagging along with the Duke to examine his wealth. Though she's greeted by his wife and confronted with their seemingly blissful monogamous marriage, Emmanuel stays true to herself and expresses her embrace of the polyamorous lifestyle, unmoved by their committal. It turns out to be a po-faced lie anyway, as it seems the couple regularly invite other people into their love life anyway. Indeed, the very same evening, the Duke invites Emmanuel to be an active participant in a threesome, in which she's more than happy to oblige. Notably, however, she stealthily slips away when it appears the married couple have reunited their passion with each other, and with a knowing smile, she closes the door and leaves them alone. The brief period with which she was with them seems to be a bit too purposeful to be just a bit of fun. Rather, it seems Emmanuel knew that there was this tension in the couple and has helped them out purposefully like a guardian angel, leaving when it's clear that they can continue together on their own. She does, however, bite off more than she can chew when the next day, countless socialites and noblemen turn up to the house for a dinner party that quickly descends into a Romanesque orgy when it becomes clear that a naked girl is inside the cake. Notably, Emmanuel doesn't really participate in this, presumably because she's just rather affronted by how inaccurately the Duke has portrayed himself to be. She makes a move to leave the country, taking a gondola to the airport. 
and it's rather notable that she takes a shine to the man piloting the gondola, referring to him as the sweetest memory that she'll have of the city. Compared to the Duke, for example, the boy is quite innocent and respectfully silent, though he clearly finds Emmanuel attractive. While the Duke sort of suggested that he was singularly devoted to his wife, he turned out to be fibbing, so the image of a man who stays in line and respects her privacy would actually endear her. The next section of the film is an undisclosed location in the Caribbean, where there's an exotic hotel where the female clients can choose a male stud for the weekend and play with them how they wish. For a movie of this nature, this is probably the closest it gets to a true pornographic setting and plot, though D'Amato injects other random things into the mix just to be awkward. We have a threesome being explored, a role play of Tarzan and Jane inside a tiny teepee, which turns hardcore very quickly, there's a cowboy stripping for his female date, really awkwardly on a near horizontal staircase, and finally there's a couple making love while the film plays in the background. It's a real antithesis to the misogynistic depiction of men in the harem of Van Daren. With the roles reversed, women now have complete power over the men, and they employ them to indulge their base desires. With the exception of the Tarzan Jane role-playing, where the woman actually wants that domination from her male partner, the women here are in control of their sexuality, such as the image of a man stripping for a woman instead of the other way round, or muscular men parading around in towels so that the women can make their choice. I mean, I can dig equal opportunities, Joe D'Amato. The latter image, however, of the couple making love is marred by the film footage that's playing in the background, which is a series of gruesome violent acts, sexual violence and snuff scenarios. Emmanuel is understandably appalled, as this is an avenue where even she won't tread, but she's soon arrested by the staff for snapping her pictures of the facility. The receptionist is particularly judgmental, despite working for the licentious clients herself, and after chipping away slowly, Emmanuel discovers that she's actually into women. In the way that only an Emmanuel film does, our intrepid heroine tries to hit on the receptionist, and is sort of rebuked after some initial arousal. She then tries the aggressive approach, throwing her to the floor, ripping her dress off, before forcing her to drink a large brandy and eat an intense aphrodisiac. After proceeding to fondle her for a few moments, Emmanuel uses the lady's intense moans and writhings of pleasure to escape the place. I mean, what's technically happening here is non-consensual and therefore it's a bit rapey on behalf of our heroine. But in these Joe D'Amato films, you frequently find the sexual politics are very blurry and problematic. The whole tone of the scene, however, is more amusing than anything else because of the brazenness and the sheer pornographic nature to finding ways to strip off clothes, so it's certainly not done offensively. Emmanuel indulges in very similar dubious behaviour in Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, and there's even a rape sequence in Emmanuel in Bangkok that also raises eyebrows for the same reasons. So these flirtations, with non-consensual acts becoming consensual, is rather common in this series of films. But like the rest of the movies, however, it's done with the same blasé attitude that really requires a couple of pinches of salt. The final few scenes in which Emmanuel returns to America to investigate the torture footage is done rather simply, as Emmanuel tracks down a senator who indulges in using the footage himself for sexual purposes. Emmanuel then finds herself drugged with LSD and has a bizarre vision of more snuff footage whilst being groped by the lip-licking politician. A few scenes later reveal anyway that these sequences actually happened, though obviously Emmanuel can't remember where the snuff was actually filmed. 
The whole position of the senator in society, with all of the nameless women who are being sexually tortured and murdered, smacks a little as some sort of commentary on American society. Similar to Dessard's works of high-up toffs and rich aristocrats using the underclasses for their own sadistic sexual pleasures, the film seems to show that defenceless women are also fair game for those who have the control and the money. Rather noticeably, this sequence is set in America, and Washington DC no less, another sort of underhanded swipe at United States politics and society. Just when you think the film is rising to a conclusion, though, the whole debacle is dropped when Emmanuel's editor refuses to publish. And in a fit of rage, Emmanuel goes on vacation angrily with her boyfriend Bill and becomes a minor celebrity to a native tribe before the film ends. It's pretty throwaway for what was actually quite a decent build-up in the film's final third. The fact it's thrown away for a very mild and long-winded epilogue is a bit disappointing, but there you have it. I guess I'm just lucky that I wasn't completely bored out of my mind, since I'm not exactly in this film's target audience. There's certainly interest in between all of the fumblings and ravishments of Emmanuel in America, most of it emanating from the usual Italian charms and quirks of exploitation films in general. I mean, for example, that table in Emmanuel's apartment, which is a giant pack of Winston cigarettes, is absolutely fabulous just to look at. There's an advert for the same Siggies featured later on in a street shot, just above a J&B whiskey advert. If there was ever an overload of Italian exploitation film tropes, this beginning section is it. Other elements also make you smile, like the slow pan from Emmanuel and her boyfriend screwing to the painting of a cross-section of a fruit. Or even the fact that they just have a quick fumble in a church in Venice. Even the film's title, Emmanuel in America, makes you giggle a little bit, since she actually spends so little time in America. It's almost like Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, all over again. Even the production values are very typically Italian, with the House of the Duke being incredibly opulent. Everything seems like it's gilded or coated in finery, and with the canals of Venice in the background, nothing could be more Italian if it tried. While the film does have its subtleties, it has its fair share of explicit shocks as well, Enjoying the Duke's orgy, there's an actual bit of hardcore fellatio going on. Same with the Tarzan and Jane couple in the tent, with a blowjob and full penetration happening. The subsequent threesome scene is also hardcore as well, with oral, vaginal and masturbation galore. In the latter two, there's even cum shots featured, so this is certainly not one that you're going to put on with mother and father in the room. One of the distinctive features of this Emmanuel entry, however, is the vile snuff footage. It's very unpleasant to watch, featuring some guerrilla-style film sequences that wouldn't be out of place in a found footage film. Some of the depravities on display are a woman being blowtorched in the chest, a woman forced to fillet a barbed pole at gunpoint, a woman being raped with the same pole and strangled, and even a red-hot brand being applied to their skin. The second film that's in the senator's bedroom features more rape, including a woman being forced onto a spiked pole and another having a meat hook inserted vaginally. The later supposedly psychedelic sequence where Emmanuel is drugged is filmed in the same snuff video style, but it's presented as though it's reality, featuring women being forced to drink boiling oil, a woman being fatally penetrated by a pole, a woman being raped with her mouth gag cutting into her cheeks, and another has their nipples being sawn off with a knife. This blending of reality and the snuff footage is very effective at making you feel scuzzy, and though the explicitness of the violence is no worse than the stuff you've seen in other gore movies of the era, 
It's the jerky camera movements, the grainy, dirty film stock, and the quick edits and cutaways that make it so unnerving. Considering that this is pre-cannibal holocaust as well, really deserves mention, as it's this technique specifically that made the horrors of Ruggiero Diodato's film seem all the more realistic and disturbing. Emmanuel in America is a real hot potato of extremes. Visceral and sexual worlds collide quite drastically in the hour and a half that the film goes on for. It's admittedly rather a clever film that knows its audience, and for the longest of times, it lulls you into a sense of security about how the film's going to play out, before dumping a real load of nastiness on you in the film's final moments. It's enjoyable, though, and for those who find Italian sexploitation endearing enough to watch, you'd be provided with enough laughs, giggles, shocks and craziness to make your movie night with alcohol, snacks and friends even more insane. Emmanuel, of course, was played by Laura Gemser, who stepped into the role in 1975's Black Emmanuel as an Italian knockoff of the French original. She continued to make appearances in the series and other Italian sexploitation pictures due to her svelte figure. Stuff that we've covered before, like Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, Violence in a Women's Prison and Endgame that we covered just a few weeks ago. It's the same for her real-life husband, Gabrielle Tinti, who played the Duke in this film. He's been in most of her filmography as a recurring love interest and in the films that we've already covered and just mentioned. American actor Roger Brown played the senator who'd been in several 007 knockoffs like Super 7 Calling Cairo and Assault on the State Treasure, while Bill was played by Ricardo Salvino who'd been in a couple of Jallo pictures like Your Vices a Locked Room and Only Eye of the Key and Death Will Have Your Eyes. Danish actor Lars Bloch, who played the vile Van Daren, had also appeared in a handful of exploitation flicks like Shanghai Joe and erotic exploits of a sexy seducer. Paola Senatore played the role of Laura. She'd been in a whole host of Italian flicks like The Flower with the Deadly Sting, uh, The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, Salon Kitty and the video nasty Eaten Alive. Maria Piera Regoli, who played Diana, reappeared in Emmanuel Around the World, as did Ephraim Apple, who starred as Emmanuel's boxer friend, Joe. The lady watching the snuff movie was played by Mathilde Delagio, who was in the video nasty SS Experiment Camp, while the waiter at the Duke's Orgy was played by Giulio Massimini, who was in Lamberto Barber's psychedelic Jello Delirium and Umberto Lenzi's House of Lost Souls. Charlie was played by character actor Salvatore Baccaro, whom we've seen before in Deported Women of the SS Special Section. He also popped up in two video nasties, The Beast in Heat, which was another Nazi exploitation flick, and Dario Argento's suspense fest Deep Red. Gemini was played by familiar French actress Lorraine Desselle, whom we spotted alongside Laura Gemser in Violence in a Women's Prison. She was also in two of the prominent video nasties, which were Umberto Lenzi's Cannibal Ferox and Ruggiero Diodato's House on the Edge of the Park. Marina Hedman, who played the woman having sex in the hut, pretty much exclusively appeared in porno flicks later, though she did make an appearance in the softcore flick The Beast in Space. Humorously credited as masturbating redhead, Actress Renata Cash also appeared in Lady Frankenstein, She-Devils of the SS, and the Jello film A Black Veil for Lisa. Ulla Johansson, who appeared as one of Van Darren's harem, also popped up in other sexploitation productions, like Emmanuel Around the World, as Girl Penetrated with Banana, and Enzo Castellari's Inglorious Bastards, as Naked Woman with a Machine Gun. 
We've encountered director and cinematographer Joe D'Amato enough on this podcast to skip the history lesson on him. The film was written by Maria Pia Fusco, who worked on Hitler The Last Ten Days, Salon Kitty, Emmanuel in Bangkok, and Emmanuel Around the World. Ottavio Alessi also assisted with the story, who'd also written Whatever Happened to Baby Toto, Adultery Italian Style, as well as Emmanuel in Bangkok. He also made a cameo appearance in 1971's The Designated Victim. Finally, there was Piero Vivarelli, who worked on 1966's Django, and Emmanuel in Bangkok. The soundtrack was composed by Nico Fidenko, who worked on most of the Black Emmanuel series, including the 1975 original, Emmanuel in Bangkok, Yellow Emmanuel, Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, and Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade. He also worked on other Italian exploitation films like Video Nasty, Zombie Holocaust, Porno Holocaust, and Naked and Cruel, which was a Mondo film. The editing was done by Nasty Pasty regular Vincenzo Tomassi, whom we've enjoyed on Lizard in a Woman's Skin, Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals, Contraband, City of the Living Dead, New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, Panic, Ratman, and Cat in the Brain. He was assisted by Massimo Latini, who'd worked on Black Emmanuel, the original one, as well as Carlo Della Corte, who helped with the editing on Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel in Bangkok, and Zombie Flesh Eaters. Maurizio Trani worked on the special effects, again, who we've spotted many times before on Witchcraft, Don't Torture a Duckling, New York Ripper, Bronx Warriors, 2019 After the Fall of New York, and Rat's Night of Terror. Ginetto De Rossi also worked in the special effects team, famous for his work on some of the nasties like Zombie Flesh Eaters, Cannibal Apocalypse, The Beyond, The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, and House by the Cemetery. Finally, assistant director Donatella Donati was a frequent D'Amato collaborator, working in the same capacity on Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals and D'Amato's later nasty Anthropophagus. The film was released in January of 1977 in its native Italy, but due to the film's content it was released in a limited format. It never really gained too much traction and was instead distributed around the world on mostly VHS formats, usually in the context of adult film shops due to the hardcore footage within. Due to different countries' attitudes to the film, various cuts exist, such as in the US and Germany, where the hardcore footage and the horse sequence was cut out, with some of the snuff footage snipped. While the film wasn't released in the pre-cert years in the UK, there was apparently a video version released in 1987, but apart from pre-cutting the majority of the sex scenes, which was 13 minutes in total, the BBFC requested an additional 5 minutes and 42 seconds to remove the horse masturbation, other sex scenes and nudity, and the entirety of the snuff footage. The remaining film must have been barely watchable, though I actually can't find confirmation that this version actually ended up being released anyway. It's remained unavailable in the country ever since, even if it did get passed, and even if it does get eventually greenlit, the hardcore stuff would likely be removed from the print, as it's not really justifiable in the context of the movie. Either that, or it would just be relegated for sale in adult shops only. But for those of you who can't wait for the UK to become more permissive, a brand spanking new transfer on Blu-ray has emerged in the US just recently from Mondo Macabro. So that was Emmanuel in America. We'll go back in time a little bit and head further east with our next film of the week, Emmanuel in Bangkok.
Photojournalist Emmanuelle develops some of her photographs while her assistant makes advances on her. Leaving for a boat trip to the east, she meets up with an old friend Roberto, who's an archaeologist, and has dinner with him on the night of the voyage. After discussing their upcoming visit to Bangkok, the pair have sex in their cabins, and by morning the pair depart ways to their own individual itineraries. Getting into a taxi, Emmanuel finds a bouquet of orchids and a welcome note from the royal prince Sanit, and snaps various pictures of the Thai cityscape during her journey. Arriving at her hotel room, she undresses while a bellboy stares on in amazement. And after this, she goes on a boat ride with Prince Sanit, who has agreed to help Emmanuel get prime photographs of the royal family. After the boat docks, he takes her on a tour of the city's delights, including a traditional Thai massage and pampering session, where she becomes more than friendly with the lady masseur, Guy. After some heavy petting, Guy takes Emmanuel through the Bangkok markets before taking her to experience ginseng ice cream. After a fun day, she returns to her hotel room and after having a drink, she notices the bellboy from before hiding inside her room. She gives him a drink as well and after doing a little dance, she seduces him into giving her a massage, which is then interrupted by Roberto who knocks at the door. Roberto takes Emmanuel and Guy out to see his friends, American tourist Jimmy and his wife Frances, where Emmanuel avails herself of the multiple photographic opportunities, including temples, exotic animals, Thai boxing, sword fighting, a cockfight, naked dancers who play with candlesticks, and one who shoots ping-pong balls from her vulva. Attending a gathering at Prince Sanit's house, Jimmy, Francis, Emmanuel and Roberto retire to a lounge and smoke opium before engaging in an orgy with each other. The next day, Emmanuel is escorted into the Thai country, where she witnesses a cobra and a mongoose attacking each other in a glass case. Emmanuel returns to her hotel again and discovers Guy and Roberto making love in the room next door. Jimmy reveals to Emmanuel that Francis has left him to return to the States, and Roberto also takes his leave and bids farewell to Emmanuel at the airport. Back at the hotel, Emmanuel finds her room in a state of disorder, with her cameras and passport missing after having been ransacked. She heads to Prince Sanit's house, only to find his house too in a suspicious state. She's suddenly accosted by a large group of men and raped though she manages to survive the ordeal by pandering to the men who suddenly cease their aggressive approach. After the act is over, Emmanuel is able to glean from the men that they believe she and Prince Sanit are plotting to attack the king in a coup. Going to the airport to try to leave, she encounters issues as her passport is gone, but she seduces an airport employee to get a pass. Whilst heading for her flight, she encounters Francis and explains her intention to go to Casablanca. During the flight to New Delhi, she and Francis have a sapphic encounter in the toilets, and once they land, Emmanuel leaves alone and goes straight to the US consulate to explain her situation. There she meets Deborah, the daughter of the consul, who is a fan of Emmanuel's work. Inviting Emmanuel to her father's home, Deborah allows her to shower, and afterwards she introduces her to her father David and her family friend Tommy. David vows to retrieve Emmanuel's camera back from Bangkok, while Emmanuel expresses her desire to seek out Roberto at his latest archaeological dig, where he also meets Roberto's new fiancée, Janet. Though Janet is initially suspicious and hostile, she allows Emmanuel to share her tent while the couple make love. The next morning, the trio make their way to some desert ruins when the car breaks down. 
As they attempt to repair the vehicle, a group of Tuareg men ride on by their horses, which convinces the women to hitch a ride in order to get some help. Back at the Tuareg camp, the women are entertained by flute music and exotic dancing, which entices Janet to strip off and join the frivolity. Emmanuel soon follows suit and joins a titillating dance session, culminating in sex. The pair eventually make it back to Roberto, who playfully refuses to hear their story of what happened. The group eventually make it back to the consul, who was able to retrieve all of Emmanuel's stolen property from Bangkok, which overjoys her. After celebrating briefly with Tommy and David, Emmanuel witnesses Janet rather cordially ending her engagement with Roberto, who also cheerfully agrees. Deborah, infatuated with Emmanuel, shows her the vast collection of paintings that she's done, some of which are of Emmanuel. The pair then spend a tender evening together, bathing each other and sleeping together. As the pair walk through the markets, Emmanuel discusses that she may have to potentially leave to do some other assignments, and stresses that Deborah must find her own freedom and confidence to carry on without her. The pair get a ride back to the consul's home from Roberto, who makes love to Emmanuel on their return, watched by an aroused Deborah. When Roberto spies her watching the pair, he forcibly seizes her and puts her on the bed, shaming her for her interest in Emmanuel, and proclaiming loudly that he hates lesbians. Emmanuel coldly rejects him and asks him to leave, professing her love for Deborah and making love to the girl. Getting some advice from Tommy, she enlists him to drop off her film reels in America while she ponders whether she wishes to stay with Deborah in Casablanca. Meeting Roberto, who's still aggressive that she chose Deborah over him, Emmanuel bids farewell to him for the last time, and after going to the console, she ultimately decides to leave Deborah as well, when an assignment in Paris is sent from her office in New York. Deborah provides her with her own passport, which she'd hidden for the fear of her leaving. As the film ends, Deborah gifts Emmanuel with her latest painting, and the couple say goodbye one last time. I'm 
Emmanuel in Bangkok was chronologically the first black Emmanuel film to be directed by Joe D'Amato, and it's been subsequently considered to be the true sequel to Beto Albertini's original Black Emmanuel in 1975. Albertini's own continuation, Black Emmanuel II, was remarkably different in style and execution, substituting Laura Gemser's May Jordan character with Israeli actress Shulamith Lazri, portraying an amnesiac supermodel called Emmanuel Morgan, who inspires an investigation into her past when she turns up at a Manhattan clinic. D'Amato's continuation was arguably much more successful, spawning an additional five films for the series, while Albertini released 1977's Yellow Emmanuel to moderate success, but then finished his career with Mondo films, like 1984's Naked and Cruel. Released hot on the heels of Albertini's original, Emmanuel in Bangkok unsurprisingly chronicles our liberated sex siren as she explores the oriental cityscape of Bangkok on a journalistic assignment. In the same way, however, that Emmanuel in America was somewhat lacking in the Americana department, Emmanuel in Bangkok only features the Thai city of Krung Thep for the first half of the film. The remainder briefly mentions a stop in Delhi, India, before settling in Casablanca in Morocco for the rest of the movie. Compared to Emmanuel in America, which of course came afterwards, Emmanuel in Bangkok is tamer in terms of its explicitness and shock value, shall we say. It doesn't feature any disturbing snuff footage, bestiality, or hardcore footage of any kind. That's not to say it's completely PC softcore fumblings, however, as this entry does have some rather unsavoury and problematic issues of its own. Firstly, however, it's probably best to start talking about the actual quality of the film's look and cinematography. D'Amato certainly can't be accused of having ugly films, and this certainly proves it with luxurious and exotic pans and photography of the enchanting Asian City of Angels. It's obviously partly to do with the locations being so picturesque in the first place, and it's a smorgasbord in eye candy. But good old Joe never fails to combine his cinematographic skill in catching the entrancing locales and cultural architecture, whilst our gorgeous Nymphette dominates the screen with her presence. It's no real surprise that films containing erotic content were framed against the backdrop of the East and the Middle East. I mean, historically, the East has always had a more sensual attraction about it, being the antithesis of the heavily religious, sexually conservative West. Though that idea is rather outdated by today's more permissive and liberated sexual society worldwide, Bangkok in particular still has a carnal allure to it, with a booming sex trade despite the act actually being illegal. The story is much more simple than Emmanuel in America, which at least tried to form a bit of a story out of the various situations that didn't just include sex. Emmanuel in Bangkok is a bit more simple-minded when it comes to the plot, showing Emmanuel going to Bangkok for a photo shoot, having erotic fumblings with many people, before being accused of participating in a coup, losing her passport, and sweet-talking her way to Casablanca, where she falls in love with the senator's daughter until her passport's returned and then she leaves for Paris. I mean, that's the entire story in a nutshell. There's no dangerous conspiracies, no cannibal tribes, and no real element of threat of the film. The characters are also fairly bland as Emmanuel films go, with a single-minded objective of having as much sex as possible, to the detriment of credible character arcs, logic, and even realism. While Emmanuel's character is probably the most consistent with her behaviour, 
Most of the other characters defy logic at almost every turn, and they don't function like normal characters, even in pornographic purposes. For example, Janet is introduced as Roberto's fiance and has a noticeable dislike towards Emmanuel's presence with them, presumably because she's aware of hers and Roberto's history. With one scene transition, though, she's now comfortable with Emmanuel enough to let her be present in the tent where she's making love with her fiance, and then she subsequently joins her on a raunchy outing to a Tuareg gathering. As if this rapid change wasn't noticeable enough, she then gleefully breaks off the engagement with Roberto and explains her desire to be free, despite being absolutely stalwart and resistant to interference the day prior. Roberto, on the other hand, jovially agrees, as though it was something as banal as I just want to borrow your pencil for a minute. If only engagements breaking up were this civil and stressless in real life. The American tourists, Jimmy and Francis, are another example of this lack of consistency with characters, who explicitly declare themselves as Republicans, so you'd expect them to at least be socially conservative in their attitudes. But it's all but abandoned, however, as they proceed to smoke opium with the rest of the group and engage in sex acts with each other, kind of spitting on the supposed sanctity of their marriage. This idea is taken even further, however, when Francis decides to ultimately leave Jimmy, and it's treated so matter-of-factly that you end up wondering just how solid their marriage even was in the first place. Coupled with that fact is the scene where Francis encounters Emmanuel once more at the airport and decides to travel with her to have some sexual contact in the toilet. Considering the Republican stance on the LGBT community, I doubt that her lesbian desires conform to her political viewpoints in any way, which to me just makes her seem very hypocritical. Rather humorously, though, Francis is then abandoned for the rest of the film, and Emmanuel really never thinks about her again. Roberto's supposed hatred of lesbians is also rather at odds with Emmanuel's carte blanche pansexuality, despite the fact that they seem to have had a rather large history with each other. It's really bizarre how he wouldn't know about that aspect of her. Or he simply does, and again, it's just hypocrisy. Even Emmanuel's character begins to show signs of this strange detachment from her actions towards the film's end, where Tommy actually asks why she hasn't slept with him. I actually wondered that myself, as I'd at least have expected either he or David to have at least perved on her by that point, but any scene involving them was surprisingly absent. The most noticeable aspect of this, however, is the bond between Deborah and Emmanuel, which is the majority of the film's focus once the action goes to Casablanca. It's established that Deborah is intensely in love with Emmanuel and inspired by her as a mentor, wishing to be just as free and able to travel as she is. Emmanuel's reaction has been a bit more subtle by reciprocating her sexual advances but not exactly trudging the L word. The only time she declares her love for her is when she's attacked verbally by the jealous Roberto, which seemed to be a bit more lucid. However, the film's finale was rather hilarious when after all this emotional and sexual investment in Deborah, Emmanuel doesn't even give her a goodbye kiss or a hug. She simply trots off with the painting that Deborah's painstakingly made for her. I mean, no wonder she had a face like a smacked arse. Roberto's goodbye was also similarly flaccid in its execution. I mean, you'd never guess that they'd known each other and slept together for years. But probably the most flabbergasting and outrageous scene of completely detached behaviour is Emmanuel's rape scene. She's approached by several grotesque-looking men who clearly mean her harm. She's grabbed against her will and stripped of her clothes. Whilst still resistant, the men hold her down and sequentially begin to rape her. 
It's not super explicit or anything, but soon after the act starts, she flashbacks to a compliment that Prince Sanet gave her, where he praised her ability to control her orgasm and sexual pleasure to her own terms. After this is played again, Emmanuel seemingly then consents to her ordeal, smiling and becoming more relaxed with the men who were assaulting her. It's a pretty troubling scene, really, whose only saving grace is that it's not actually explicit in either the sexual or the violent aspects. It gets particularly jaw-dropping as Emmanuel even engages with her rapists after the act is over, as though it was a mere misunderstanding or a non-event. I mean, come on, it's a friggin' rape scene, not a tea party. The only reason I don't get 100% outraged is just the fact that the sexual politics in these films are so purposefully non-PC that this scene is just one of dozens of similar situations in the Emmanuel films that are going to raise eyebrows. This is definitely one of the more memorable of these scenes, but after the scene comes off so blasé afterwards, you'll probably emit some nervous laughter just about how screwed up that was. The sexual shenanigans in the film are certainly more numerous than Emmanuel in America, but they are overall tamer, with none of the explicit hardcore footage that was liberally inserted into that one. A couple of these moments actually engender some humour as well, in comparison to the very mixed messages that the gang rape does. The first one is the obligatory scene between Emmanuel and Roberto on the cruise ship at the film's opening. As of course they were a real-life couple, it always looks a bit more tender and intimate than the other love scenes, but there's a great deal of humour as D'Amato has the action cut with scenes of large pistons thrusting in and out and repetitive mechanisms operating in the engine room, with the requisite steam and appropriately seductive music. It's really not that subtle, and it does bring a few giggles to an otherwise standard sex scene. Another moment, which is quite fun and a bit sweet in the way, is the very innocent-looking bellboy who's in Emmanuel's room. Apart from the rather sultry way that she refers to taking a bath, likening it to a lover's embrace, she engages the bellboy by enticing him to dance with her. It's kind of fun to watch them, and ultimately she doesn't even have sex with the guy. They just spend some intimate time together where the guy gives her a massage. Rather sweet, really, in contrast to the usual TNA treatment of the rest of the film. What's also different, though, in contrast to other Emmanuel films, is the way in which the locations are so glorified in the background. There's a couple of sections in the film, like Emmanuel's arrival and her travel with Prince Sanit, as well as the meet-up with Jimmy and Francis, where a lot of time is devoted to travelogue-like sequences, which focus a lot on the cultural aspects of Bangkok and the exotic style of the buildings and the country. It makes the film appear almost like a Mondo movie, though a decidedly erotic one, with fascinating curios and bizarre glimpses of customs. These include some national sports like Thai boxing and sword play, as well as some erotic dancing involving a candlestick, and a rather dodgy one where a naked lady inserts a ping-pong ball teasingly into her genitals before squeezing and popping it out, almost like a Thai sticky vicky. One aspect of this Mondo-esque feeling, however, that creeps in isn't going to be for everyone, as there's some instances of animal cruelty, such as some footage of a cockfight and a noticeably randomly inserted instance of a cobra fighting a mongoose. It's not particularly pleasant, especially in this latter instance, as it's clearly been staged for this film only. At least with the cockfight, it's clearly an organised event that the crew have just visited, since the barbaric sport is still practised there quite frequently even today. But there's no legitimate reason why a cobra and a mongoose are in a glass case in the middle of the bloody countryside. 
I didn't really find this one as interesting as Emmanuel in America, plot-wise anyway, which I found to be a lot more shocking and exciting. But at the same time, Emmanuel in Bangkok was lots more pretty. I guess you really can't complain if the chief reason that you're watching it is for the multiple instances of naked ladies. But for those of us who will view this with different eyes, there's still plenty of silly Italian tropes, pornographic levels of unrealistic behaviour, and a whole phantasmagoria of exquisite oriental settings. So, I guess it's really for you to decide. Laura Gemser returns as the titular Emmanuel character, while her real-life husband, Gabriel Tinti, also returns, but this time as the Italian professor, Roberto. Prince Sanit was played by the decidedly non-Asian-looking Ivan Rasimov, who was an Italian actor who's quite recognisable amongst Italian cult fans. He was in Barva's Planet of the Vampires, The Strange Vice of Mrs Ward, All the Colours of the Dark, Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I have the Key, White Dress for Marielle, Spasmo, Shock, in Atlantis Interceptors, and Body Count. In addition, Rasimov starred in three video nasties, all of which were Italian cannibal flicks, including Umberto Lenzi's Deep River Savages, or The Man from Deep River, Ruggiero Diodato's Cannibal, or Last Cannibal World, and finally, Lenzi's later film, Eaten Alive. Venantino Venantini, who we've spotted before on Terror Express, Contraband and City of the Living Dead, played the US Consul David, while actor Giacomo Rossi Stewart played the American tourist Jimmy, who'd been in The Last Man on Earth alongside Vincent Price, The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave, Death Smiles on a Murderer, Crimes of the Black Cat, and Shanghai Joe. Wife Francis was played by Ellie Galliani, whom we've seen in Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin, while Koike Mohoko, who played the petite masseur Guy, later popped up in Black Cobra Woman, which was released as Emmanuel Goes Japanese. Romanian actor Chris Avram appeared as David's best friend Tommy, probably most famous for his appearance as the sleazy Frank Ventura in Mario Barva's Bay of Blood, which was one of the video nasties. He made additional appearances, though, in stuff like The Killer Reserved Nine Seats and Enter the Devil. Finally, Deborah was played by Deborah Berger, who starred in the Vietnam vet thriller 1976's Naked Massacre and later went on to have a role in Enzo G. Castellari's Inglorious Bastards. Considering they were filmed almost one after the other, you won't really be shocked that Joe D'Amato reused almost the exact same crew as in Emmanuel in America that he first utilised in this film. D'Amato returns here as the director and cinematographer, while Ottavio Alessi, Maria Pia Fusco, and Piero Vivarelli all returning as writers of the story and the screenplay. The music was done again by Nico Fidenko, the editing done by Vincenzo Tomasi and Carlo Della Corte, and even Donatella Donati returned to help D'Amato with the direction. The only new additions, really, were Maria Grazia Nardi, who worked in the makeup department. She also worked on Death Smiles on a Murderer and Black Cobra Woman while the editing team was assisted additionally by Bruno Michelli, whom we've encountered before on the Iguana with the Tongue of Fire and Don't Torture a Duckling. Like Emmanuel in America, Emmanuel in Bangkok was released in limited form in Italy and subsequently went on to various VHS releases around the world. Strangely, this actually got a VHS release in the UK in 1984, which was right in the middle of the video nasty Hullabaloo. Under the title Black Emmanuel Goes East, which is admittedly a more accurate title, the film was released by Canon Video, who were a very small distributor with just 13 titles on the market. 
But even more bizarrely, however, three of these releases were video nasties, including the 1982 slasher film Pranks, The Werewolf and the Yeti from Spain, and the equally Spanish Jello picture The Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. The version of Emmanuel in Bangkok that was released by them, however, was only around 86 minutes in length, so presumably there was some material removed prior to release, and it's very difficult today to ascertain what was missing. After the whole absurd event was over, Emmanuel in Bangkok disappeared until 2008, when Optimum submitted an uncut version of the film for approval under the title Black Emmanuel on Orient. The BBFC did certify the film as 18, but they required a sizeable chunk of cuts totalling 4 minutes and 26 seconds. Included in this was the complete removal of Emmanuel's rape scene, in which she appears to enjoy the ordeal, the two moments of animal cruelty with the cox and the cobra mongoose bit, as well as some of the more explicit sex bits, including the ping-pong ball being squirted from ladies' bits. This is the current version of the film that's available here, and I don't really see the cuts being waived anytime soon, since eroticised sexual violence, animal cruelty, and hardcore pornography in a mainstream release are still prohibited by law. You can, of course, though, in today's marvellous market, import the film uncut from the US or European territories. And that's the episode for this week, guys. Sorry for the delay again, folks, but since there's only two more episodes to go anyhow, I'm sure just a little extra time won't hurt too much. We'll be cranking up the sex and violence up again in next week's Nasty Pasty, as we're literally covering more Joe D'Amato madness with two pornographic horrors. Yes, you heard it, folks. Actual hardcore pornography with extreme gore and violence. I mean, what more can a horror fan ask for? You can join us next week then for Porno Holocaust and Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. But until then, however, take care of yourselves and I'll speak to you again in a jiffy. Thank you and good night. <laughs>